Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. You haven't already to turn to Revelation, the first, the last book of the Bible, but the first chapter of Revelation. I'm going to read the first chapter, chapter one of Revelation, if you follow along. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads those who hear and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who saved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, what you see right in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me and saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. If I were to ask you 
How do you envision Jesus when you are praying or when you are reading the scripture? How do you envision him? Do you envision him walking by the Sea of Galilee as he's presented in the Gospels? Do you envision him transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration? Do you envision him as the resurrected Jesus as he appeared to his disciples after his resurrection? Or do you envision him the way John saw him in this particular passage? One of the ways that God has revealed himself to us, that Jesus has revealed himself to us, is through these visions. Now today, God primarily uh, works through the word of God. But that doesn't mean that God can't do whatever he wants to do. We know that in both the Old and the New Testament, God communicated through visions. We think of Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah. We also think of Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. And now here, John receives this amazing vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are beginning a new series here this morning, Seven Letters to Seven Churches. And these are churches that existed in the first century in the area of Asia Minor, which is now modern Turkey. So don't think of Asia as we think now of Asia. It was the Roman province of Asia in the first century. The Roman emperor was Titus Flavius Domitian. John wrote Revelation about A.D. 95. Fifty years earlier, the emperor Nero had persecuted the church. But his persecution was sort of haphazard. And the church kind of flew under the radar, though there were Christians who gave their lives under Nero's persecution. But now Domitian is the emperor. And when Domitian came along, he wanted everybody to only worship him as God, the Caesar who is the son of God. So persecution under Domitian really broke out. His persecution was very organized spread through the whole Roman Empire. And imagine being a Christian living at that time and the state government, the government that was the Roman Empire, which had complete control, is now marking you as a Christian for persecution. You don't know if or when the soldiers are coming to your house to take you and your family, either maybe kill you right in the street or take you down to Rome where you will die in the Colosseum. You know there are neighbors that have disappeared, that they're no longer there who were Christians. And so imagine living under that kind of threat, that kind of pressure. And so it is to this generation that God gives John this amazing revelation of himself. Also, Satan was infiltrating the church, not only putting pressure on the church from the outside, but in the inside. He was attempting to destroy the church in its infancy, but Satan soon figured out that the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church, and it only served to strengthen and expand Christianity, even as we've seen in China, as we see in North Korea, even today. And so this is an amazing letter that John is told to write. The vision of the resurrected Jesus in his glory would have been a great encouragement to these Christians who were suffering under such intense persecution. 
Now, there are seven letters to seven churches, and the contents of those are in chapters 2 and 3, and we will look at each one of those letters individually, though each letter was to be sent to all the churches. So what that tells us is that these letters, though specific to a certain church, were for all the churches, let alone the whole book of Revelation, and we believe that these letters are for the church in every age, and there are aspects of each letter to each church that we can always apply to our own church here in the 21st century. But before we can actually consider the seven letters, we have to see what comes before it, this amazing vision of the resurrected Christ. So in chapter 1, we find out who the human author of this book is, and we find out who the divine author is. And so it's verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is the great unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word revelation is apocalypse. And it means to unveil, it means to disclose, it means to reveal. This shows us that Christians, even today, who read the book of Revelation will have a measure of understanding. Well, the human author is John the Apostle. This is the apostle whom Jesus loved. John is an amazing individual. Verse 1, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass, he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. It's interesting, the other, many of the other writers of the Bible, there was inspiration from the Holy Spirit. In this particular case, God used an angel to communicate the vision and the message of revelation to the apostle John. The word shortly means suddenly. The prophesied events of revelation, when they come, will take the world completely by surprise. The word signified means to make known by signs and symbols. The book of Revelation contains more symbols than any other book in the New Testament. Verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Here was John on the Isle of Patmos because he preached the message that Jesus Christ is the one and only God. There are a number of unique things in the book of Revelation, and one of the unique things is it's the only book that specifically promises you a blessing. Now, I believe any book of the Bible, you will be blessed, but it's interesting that this book actually states the fact that you will be blessed. Verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. It means imminent could happen at any time. It was the practice of the early church because they didn't bring a Bible to church like you and I do. Uh, the Bible was written on scrolls. And so as they came, these letters, somehow, we're not told how, but after John wrote them, somehow these scrolls were sent out to all seven churches, the complete book of Revelation. And so when it came to a congregation, Ephesus is the first one we're going to look at. So when it came to the church of Ephesus, some of these were house churches, uh, the pastor would stand up and he would read it and then everyone would listen and would hear it, similar to what I just did as I read the first chapter and, and you heard it. You could have followed along in your Bible or on the screen. And so we understand that's the setting in the first century. This is the first of seven beatitudes or blessings in the book of Revelation. 
Now, some believe that Revelation is too obscure. Martin Luther thought you should just eliminate Revelation from the canon of Scripture. But I don't believe that. I don't believe you can make understand everything. But the verse makes no sense. Blessed is he who reads, who hears, who keeps the message of this book. The word keep means to take it to heart, to obey. The word time is charos. Um, two primary words for time in the Greek New Testament. One means chronological time. This word means periods of time or epics of time. And this is a great epic that Revelation reveals to us. Could happen at any time. We believe the rapture of the church will begin this particular time. Well, the human author is John. The divine author is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ancient writers would put their names at the beginning of a letter, where we tend to put our names at the, at the end of a letter. And this is a grand revelation of the Trinity. Notice in verses 4 and 5, God the Father is represented first from him who was, who is, who was, and who is to come. The Holy Spirit is depicted in all of his fullness from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And, of course, Jesus the one who is being revealed. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. <laughs> when you look at what's happening politically in our world and all of the corruption that goes on with those leaders and rulers, no matter what nation it is, I take great comfort in knowing that Jesus Christ is the ruler over the kings of the earth, that he is the one who sovereignly is in charge. And remember, these churches, these Christians were being marginalized. They were being persecuted. So this vision of Christ would have been a great comfort. And they are reminded that God is adequate for any circumstance in a believer's life. No matter, now it's, it's unlikely, at least at this time in history, that we're going to be persecuted like this in America. That time could certainly come. But whatever you're going through in your life as a believer, God is more than adequate to handle any situation that comes up in your life. We find out that Jesus, who conquered death, is over all earthly and demonic powers in this book. And these promised blessings come from the very throne of God, verse 4. The triune God is the ultimate power in the universe. You won't find it in Washington. You won't find it in Rome. You won't find it in Beijing. The triune God is the ultimate power in the universe. And he has not abdicated his throne. And he is still completely in charge. Well, we know that the third person of the Trinity is the focus of Revelation. Jesus is the central focus of this book. Verse 5. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How encouraging that as we begin this book, this apocalypse, this incredible, far-reaching vision, Genesis is the book of beginnings, Revelation is the book of endings. It tells us how it all is going to come to an end, which would be a great encouragement to these believers, as it should be a great encouragement to us. Jesus is victorious. He defeats Satan and his demons. He defeats all those who oppose him. And Jesus reigns supreme with his saints at the end of the book of Revelation. And how precious is it that here 
John wants to remind us, Jesus wants to remind us that he is our redeemer, that he wants to tell us about his great work of redemption. And the word loved is in the present tense. It's from Jesus who loves us. And how did he prove his love for us? In that he forgave our sins. I don't know what burdens you're carrying with you this morning. I don't know what sins you are, you've committed. I know what sins I've committed this week. I doubt that any of us would like to have our life this past week, all of our thoughts, all of our deeds put up on these screens for everyone to see. And yet, we can come here knowing that this is the one who washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's what we just celebrated in the communion service. The overriding theme of Revelation is the glorious return of the Lord Jesus. Now, it's not till you get to the end of the book in chapter 19 where you specifically see the second coming of Christ. But at the very beginning of the book, we, it's emphasized that he's coming. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Can you imagine the encouragement that this was to those Christians who were suffering intense persecution as it even should be encouragement to us in our day and age? The letter is going to tell us how it all ends, this letter of Revelation. And here Jesus will conquer and destroy all evil, even Satan himself. Now the translation of the church is not in view here. This is the second coming of Jesus to the earth in chapter 19. Notice he is the Alpha and Omega, verse 8, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The phrases beginning and the end, who is, who was, who is to come, these reveal Jesus' eternality. He didn't originate in Bethlehem. What originated in Bethlehem was the incarnation, Christ taking on human flesh. Jesus as God is before all things, it says in Colossians 1.17. He is the Almighty. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is the Almighty. And so he wants us to have a vision of himself in his glory. John received a vision of the risen Jesus. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation... You know, it's interesting, John never mentions himself by name in his gospel. He's always the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, when you get to his epistles, he mentions his name. But here, he tells us right off the bat that he is the human author of the book of Revelation. Because, you see, he's identifying himself with the Christians who are being persecuted. Because John is exiled to the Isle of Patmos, this small rocky island in the middle of the Aegean Sea. John, we believe, is in his 90s as he's the last living apostle. And tradition, church tradition says, that he was forced to work in the mines on the island of Patmos. And somehow, through all of that, God sent an angel to John to record this incredible vision of Christ and record the book of Revelation. What was John's crime? Preaching the word of God and proclaiming Jesus Christ as the one true God. You see, in the Roman Empire, they had a pantheon of gods. And so as long as you proclaimed Caesar is God, 
You could believe pretty much anything you wanted to, and they really didn't care. But you had to proclaim Caesar is God. In fact, that's all you had to say. If soldiers would come to your house to drag your family away because they heard you were Christians, all you had to say was, I confess Jesus is God. I'm sorry, I confess Caesar is God. And they would leave you alone. You could even believe that Jesus is God, but he's just another God to them, added to the list of Roman gods. But to stand up and say that Jesus Christ is the one and only God, similar to our day when you tell people that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, many people get very offended. But that is the word of Christ. That's not our word. So here is John experiencing tribulation, taken to this penal colony on the island of Patmos. And then John heard a loud voice saying, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, John says. Now, many believe that's Sunday. Some debate that. I don't think it's worthy debating right now. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book. Send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Lord willing, next Sunday when we begin to look at these letters and start with the, the letter to the church at Ephesus, you might wonder, what would Jesus say to us as a church today? Well, we're going to find out. Um, remember, the church is not the building. So when you think of the church, say, at Ephesus, or think of Grace Bible Church, we're the church. These are letters to us as believers. And you want to talk about something very contemporary, although written in the first century to actual churches, they are still written to the true church of Jesus Christ, whatever location and whatever century they might be in. Number seven in Scripture speaks of perfection, completion. It's a number that you often see in the book of Revelation, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven seals, etc. And these were seven local churches, actual churches, in the province of Asia. John saw Jesus in his glorified body. Now, if you go down through here, what you see is the word as, the word like, how are you supposed to describe in human terms the vision that John saw? How does he describe that? How do you describe the indescribable? So whenever you see this kind of literature, that's why you see the word as, the word like. John is he's bringing from his own vocabulary, trying to explain in words we can comprehend what he is seeing. Now, we know in verse 20, we get some insight because Jesus gives us the meaning of a couple of these things. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. We'll talk more about this, Lord willing, next Sunday, but many Bible teachers think the angels very likely are the pastors. Uh, the spiritual leaders of the congregations. Others take a different view. But notice he sees individual lampstands. Could be arranged in a circle, though we don't know absolutely for sure. 
but we know they represent the churches, and we know this is Christ in the midst of his church. Do you realize that Christ is in our midst right here this morning? Do you understand that we are his church? We have assembled together as God's redeemed people in this location, in this local church, and that Christ is here. Much as he moved among the lampstands, he's moving among us, searching out every heart, every mind, every soul. How different this is from the first time John saw Jesus. That's why I wanted Lou Ann to read that passage from Matthew. First time he saw Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee. He looked like any other Jewish man, rabbi, teacher. And now this incredible vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Although John had seen him at the Mount of Transfiguration and John had seen him in his resurrected body, but now he sees Jesus in all of his glory. You see, the incarnation is an abiding, eternal miracle. It should literally bless your heart to understand that Almighty God, Jesus Christ, the Almighty, has decided to come in a human body so he could live a life that we could not live, a perfect life, so he could be a perfect sacrifice, not for his sin, but for our sin. And then when he was raised from the dead, his, his body was, he literally died in a human body. Then he was put in the grave. Then he rose from the dead in that body. And now he has a glorified body. He ascended to heaven in that glorified body. We will dwell in eternity with Christ in his resurrected body. He is the first fruits of our resurrection. Christ's bodily resurrection and glorification are essential for our resurrection and glorification. Now, John notes some things here. I'm sure there are many more things, but through the Holy Spirit, through the angel communicating to him this vision, he wrote down what God wanted him to write. So John noted the garments that Jesus was wearing, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. The English Standard Version says, clothed with a long, long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The priestly garments were interwoven with gold. Gold is the emblem of royalty. A priest is one who intercedes between God and men. And we know from the New Testament that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Hebrews 4.14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And Paul told Timothy, there's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That makes sense because he's the only one who is both man and God. He's the only one qualified or able to mediate between a holy God and sinful men. So there's no need for a human priesthood now. That's why the veil of the temple was ripped in two when Jesus died. We have access to the very throne of God. When you pray, you and I can have access to the very throne room of God. We can take our petitions and our needs right to him. What an amazing truth. His incarnation and his resurrection make this possible, his intercession. And then John begins to focus on Jesus' physical features. Now, this is very similar to the visions of Isaiah in chapter 6 and Daniel in chapter 7 of Daniel. 
verse 14, his hair, head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. It's one of my favorite parts of the vision, by the way. Um, this means blazing or brilliant. The emphasis here is not upon age, but upon holiness. The holiness of Almighty God. The holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this the glory and beauty in which Jesus now appears to the saved in heaven? Is this how he appears? I remember in John 17 that Jesus in his high priestly prayer said that he longed to go back and share in the glory that he had with the Father. Jesus never left glory. He just veiled his glory in the incarnation. And, and when we see Jesus in heaven, is this how we will we'll see him? Is this how he appears to our loved ones who have gone on before? Jesus walking among the candlesticks it's emblematic of Jesus walking in his church, moving about, his eyes like a flame of fire. He sees everyone and everything with penetrating omniscience. He's doing that right now. He's moving among us. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I don't know what you did this week that you wish you hadn't done. No one else may know it, but Jesus knows it. John's gaze moves from Jesus' head to his feet, verse 15. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Brass in Scripture often symbolizes judgment. In ancient times, kings would sit on an elevated throne so that when petitioners came, they were below his feet. It's kind of a imagery there. This is a picture of brass heated and glowing. I think there's a disturbing irreverence, lack of reverence for Jesus in the church today, let alone in the world today. We expect it in the world. I think a passage like this is something that we as believers should meditate on to recognize who our Savior is. This is a far cry from put your hand in the hand of the man, you know. Oh, I know that Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than any brother. I understand that. But we have to keep things in balance. And we better remember who this Jesus really is. And I think having this picture in our mind is very helpful in our worship. Picture here is of Jesus moving through his church, exercising righteous discipline. And don't think of discipline as just punishment. He's training us as his children. Hebrews 12, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. What son is there whom a father does not chasten? Now John mentions Jesus' voice, verse 15, and his voice as the sound of many waters. There it is again, as, like. How do, you, how do you describe this? I think of Niagara Falls every time I read this. Um, this has the sound of many waters. We know that Jesus speaks through his word today, verse 16, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. This isn't a hand sword, but a word sword. It's the word of God. 
a two-edged sword. It represents the fact that the Bible has the power to penetrate the soul. Hebrews 4 says, The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If you've been around here very long, you've heard me often say, it's very dangerous to sit under the preaching of the word of God. It's very dangerous. Because the Bible will either soften your heart or it will harden your heart. And if you hear and reject and reject and reject, you will harden your heart. And so the two-edged sword reminds us it cuts both ways. The Bible proclaims both salvation and damnation. A lot of people in the church today, they don't want to hear about damnation. They just want to hear about salvation. They want to hear about, you know, come to Jesus and you'll have the good life and He'll add all these material blessings to you. But they don't want to talk about the reality of hell. Every time the gospel is proclaimed, the Bible is bringing deliverance to some and condemnation to others. You know, this is the voice that one day is going to call the dead literally from the grave. First of all, he's going to call believers who have died. He's going to call them from the grave. But there'll be a time, as John said... At the end of the book of Revelation, before the great white throne, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And so everybody's going to stand before Jesus one day. You can either stand before him as your Savior, or you will stand before him as your final judge. And notice that John could only describe the risen Christ, verse 16, his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. And then John reveals Jesus' instructions to him. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now remember, this is John. This is the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the disciple who leaned on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. And when he sees the risen Christ in his glory... He falls as a dead man. Well, it shouldn't surprise us because Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Saul of Tarsus, among others, all reacted the same way when they had a vision of the Lord Jesus. But look how precious verse 17 to 18. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. Literally, stop being afraid. Isn't that precious? John sees this incredible vision that he's described as best he can in, in human language. And then when he considers it, he falls as if he were dead. And then Jesus very tenderly leans his right hand, the hand of blessing on John, and says, Stop being afraid. I am the first and last. I am he who lives and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and of death. What a tender response. The person of John's, from the person of John's vision. If you know Christ is your Savior, you don't need to fear coming into Jesus' presence. You don't need to fear that. Um, you don't need to be afraid of seeing Jesus. Um, 
I don't know if this vision, and I, I personally think it is that this is how the saints view Jesus in glory now. I think, again, they have a, the mind that they can comprehend this much better than we could. Um, when Jackie took her last breath, when Melinda took her last breath, is this when they pass in the presence of Jesus? Is this the Jesus they saw? Is this the Jesus we will see? Well, we'll find out one day. But I know this, we should not be afraid if we trusted in Jesus as our Savior. Then Jesus gives John an outline for his book. Verse 19, write the things which you have seen, which we believe is the vision, chapter 1. The things which are, are letters to the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3. And the things which will take place after this, the prophecies of chapters 4 through 21. So believers, we should never fear death. We should never fear going into the presence of our glorified Savior. But if you don't know Christ is your Savior, you have every right to fear, and you will fear. Death will be your worst nightmare. You decide for Jesus now in this life. There's no second opportunity. There's no purgatory. There's no limbo. There's no second chance. Jesus Christ has revealed himself through his word, through his son, Everything you need to decide about Christ, he has given to you. This is the Almighty. This is the first and the last. This is the ruler over the nations. But yet this is the one who came and died for you and shed his blood for you. And if you reject that salvation, you have nowhere else 